Hi everyone and welcome to the very first episode of Spark Leadership. My name is Windy Tepiso Maledu. I am a senior behavioral scientist at Coach Hub and the host of this podcast. This podcast brings the best of science and evidence to learning, development, behavior change, and well-being. I'll be joined by psychologists, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and thought leaders in coaching, leadership, and behavioral change to discuss and share insights and predictions on different HR and organizational behavior. Please stick around for this conversation as I'm delighted to have been joined by Jonathan Passmore. He is the chair of the British Psychological Society Coaching Division, researcher, author, executive coach, professor of coaching and behavioral change, and he's also the senior VP at Coach Hub and a coaching thought leader. In this episode, I spoke with Jonathan about the evolution of coaching research as a social science over the past few decades, and we also discussed the benefits of digital coaching in today's world. I learned so much from our conversation, especially the key ingredients of coaching and how executive coaches must learn to turn up the temperature of the oven. You don't want to miss out on this conversation. Without further ado, a warm welcome to the show, Jonathan. It is my great honor and privilege to have you at this time. Thank you, Wendy. It's great to be joining you today. I'm so super excited. As I always say that whenever I'm in your presence, I'm starstruck. So that is the excitement that you hear in my voice. So one of the things that are standing features on the show is that our guests will have to share one interesting fact about themselves at the beginning of the show. Yes, it's an impromptu. And um, when we wrap up the show, we'll ask you for your future predictions about the topic that we'll be talking about today. So do you mind to just quickly share with our audience today an interesting fact about yourself? So interesting fact, I have two daughters age 10 and 12 who are really interested in uh, psychology, one of them, and sport, the other. Lovely, lovely. Thank you so much. So let's move on then. Um, Our listeners may know you from a listing as a top 10 global coach and list with global gurus or the Thinkers 50. How did you become an expert in your field? Well, always in any field, it's a journey that often happens over years and over decades. My original background was in organizational leadership and At a time, I was working for a national UK charity in the mental health space. And I had already done by that particular time uh, a first degree and an MBA. And leading this organisation, providing advocacy services for individuals with mental health and other patients uh, in a variety of different settings, became more and more interested in psychology and thinking about how I could deepen my understanding in this particular area and combine that with my business knowledge, my MBA. I then went on to do a doctorate study and I initially was going to look at organisational change but as I started out on that journey I became more interested in coaching and individual change. How do you help the individuals to make the change that contributes to the organisational change agenda? Uh, And I was interested both in the coaching uh, approaches that were very embryonic, really, in late 1990s, early 2000s, uh, and secondly, appreciative inquiry as a methodology. 
And over that subsequent decade, through a number of different consultancy roles, I've started to uh, both share the results from my PhD through publications, do more research connected to my consultancy activities. So I was working for a while at IBM Business Consulting and then for another city consulting firm called OPM. Uh, and their leadership development, coaching conversations were part of what we were doing pretty much every day, collecting hundreds, thousands of hours of coaching and coach development training as we started to get into the 2008-2010 period. So leaders were beginning to get curious about this and organisations were saying, can we build our own coaching capacity? Uh, and then subsequently in that 2010-2020 period have really continued that journey of researching, practising, reflecting uh, and writing that has brought me to this particular position. And always when you are in a position where I guess other people are engaging with your work, you're engaging with other people uh, who are thought leaders, who are writers, who are research. Part of it comes from having blessings to be able to be connected to and introduced at various conferences, through other events, to a whole cadre of other outstanding thought leaders, researchers and practitioners. And as you engage with those people, they inform your own thinking, they inform your own practice, uh, and they stretch you in ways that if you were just sitting in your own office, doing your own work by yourself, you wouldn't be stretched. So running with other athletes who are fabulous improves your own performance. And I've benefited immensely from uh, conversations with many, many colleagues, uh, Eric Dahan, uh, Marshall Goldsmith, Richard Boatza, uh, Rebecca Jones, uh, are just a handful of those who uh, are really with me, pioneering the research and practice in this discipline. Wow, what a journey. Thank you so much for sharing that journey with us. And I'm happy to say that I'm standing on the shoulders of of giants, you know, just through this interview with all the names that you have just mentioned in this interview. I'm just so humbly um, honored to be interacting with you. So let's continue then with our, our interview. I mean, you've also been very prolific in writing about coaching, obviously, with the experience that you shared over the last 20 years. What have you noticed over this period in coaching? Well, I think that coaching research in particular, like coaching practice, has been on a journey over that particular period as we have found out more about the nature of this conversational based change and the methods that we're using and the precision of the questions that we're asking has improved over that particular period of time. So if we look back to the start of that journey in the 1990s, uh, and you look at journals such as Consulting Psychology Journal in the United States, who were publishing the first few collection of research papers on coaching uh, and its ability to have an impact on human performance and well-being. And what we found there, predominantly, those research papers were case studies. I, as an individual consultant, met this particular client or this organisation, and as a result of the work that we did together, we achieved this outcome. And there's value in a case study-based approach, but we know if we look at other parallel disciplines, let's take medicine as an example, that that type of case study approach doesn't offer us the robust evidence to confirm that a particular intervention, 
a health-based intervention, a vaccine, for example, works. We wouldn't take a single case to be able to generalise to a whole population. If one person got better eating olives and they had had COVID, we couldn't say olives were the cure. We would be unable to substantiate that. Instead, we would move to doing quantitative research, randomised controlled trials, large sample sizes uh, and having a control group who were taking a parallel intervention, so a placebo, and see what impact uh, the intervention was having. And that's exactly what's happened with coaching. We've moved through uh, case studies into surveys, into qualitative studies, into quantitative studies, into large-scale trials. And we're now able to draw those together in meta-analysis and provide detailed effect sizes, in other words, measure how impactful coaching is as an intervention. And of course, this research is then beginning to split and diverge. So we're not just looking at does coaching work? And we have an answer for that now, 20 years on. And the answer is clearly, yes, it does. And we can also ask the question, and we have an answer for it, how well does it work? And the answer to that question is, it works pretty well pretty much the same as many of the other well-used organisational interventions, such as training and appraisal. And now we're moving on to the questions, well, what are the key ingredients that make it work? And we have found out, not surprisingly, that when we look at the work of counselling and we've done similar studies in coaching, we can say, well, the relationship is a really important part of this. Trust is an important part of this. We can add in other ingredients to begin to say, well, these are the elements that go together to bake a really good coaching intervention. Now, what we're now working on is how much of each of these ingredients is important and in what circumstances. Because, of course, just as you're baking bread, you might choose different types of flour. You might have different types of uh, ingredients. So you might go for a bread that does have yeast or you might go for unleavened bread. Uh, You might go for other types of specialties where you add in certain types of ingredients. And coaching is exactly the same, that there are different types of presenting problems that people come with. They might want to improve performance or they might want to have a reflective conversation uh, about their long term future. Thirdly, they might want to have a conversation about managing stress or well-being. Each of those, the ingredients for that conversation, is going to be a different blend of the key ingredients that we've just been talking about. So that's one aspect of research that we're beginning to be thinking about now. Uh, And a second is individuals vary. So we recognise they vary through not only the presenting issue, but they vary in terms of personality, their readiness to engage, how they like to engage, who they like to engage with. And an important component of that, of course, is gender and culture. So we're recognising that back to that relationship part, actually, if I'm able to select my coach, that might provide me with a really good starting point for this intimate personal change conversation. So the research agenda is building. We've come a long way in 20 years. We now know coaching is a really good intervention, Pretty much every organisation should have a coaching as part of their HR strategy. But in addition to that, we're now beginning to understand and do some research to split out those individual threads is how's my coaching conversation needs to be different from your coaching conversation. 
hope you've been enjoying my conversation with Jonathan Passmore so far. Stick around as we dig deep into discussing digital coaching. Digital coaching has been a fast emerging discipline in the past decade. I wanted to ask Jonathan how it differs from traditional coaching. Well, I think it's both very similar and it's very different. It's similar in the sense that it's a in the moment conversational change. So it's synchronous. I and that individual, just as I and you on this call, uh, are having a real-time conversation. So we often have conversations with other people, and you can have reflective conversations by email, but there's something different about being in the moment. So it's it's synchronous. Uh, the second thing that I would say uh, is similar is that we're using as coaches, and pretty much everybody has, uh, over the last 18 months of COVID, uh, has moved online. So while some coaches were still meeting face to face, I'd noticed really for 10 years, increasingly clients were saying, well, be happy to meet you on a Zoom call or a Skype call uh, prior to COVID. So we were having those conversations that were were starting anyway. And all that's happened is COVID has accelerated that and pushed people who were typically meeting face to face to online, whether that's my grandma, who's now having her her conversations with her friends online, uh, as well as many leaders and managers across organisations. So that ability, I guess, to have a conversation in the moment uh, using all of the technology that's there makes it very similar to meeting face to face, particularly if the coach is skilled in being able to set up their platform in a way that enables the conversation to closely replicate face to face. So thinking about how much light can be projected onto the face, so using ring lights, thinking about sound quality, thinking about how the camera and the seating position are set up particularly ensuring that there's sufficient distance between the camera that you don't have 80% or 70% of the screen taken up with the person's face, but instead you can see the whole of the top half of their body. Because many of us are using hands as part of our communication gestures. We're also touching parts of our body, our face, our ears, our throat, uh, our hair, and that enables the coach but also enables the coachee to see a whole rounded conversation. And so those are aspects that are similar. I guess the things that are different, although maybe less different in a COVID world, is we know how important touch is. So when I, in pretty much every culture that you meet, when I would meet a client, I would typically shake hands. Now you might say, well, that's a formal gesture. It is a formal gesture, but there is a psychology behind this that touch does increase the level of trust and the level of liking. So the coach online has to work a little bit harder, take a little bit more time. But when we see the trade-off between how much time is spent traveling to a coaching call, this is a a small inconvenience. So uh, back in 2005, when I might be going for a coaching conversation with a leader, I might be lucky to have two coaching conversations in the day in a in the city. I might spend an hour and a half traveling to the first meeting. I then have an hour and a half with that senior leader. I then might spend half an hour to an hour before I then travel off to the next meeting elsewhere in the city of London and an hour and a half traveling home. And that was that was going to be the day. Sometimes I couldn't get two meetings in the same day and I might have three hours of travel time for an hour and a half of coaching 
well, that was three quarters of the day of my day rate taken up with that. That cost, of course, doesn't get disappear. It gets passed on to the client. And so we can, in digital coaching, drive down the cost, make it more convenient for the client and enables individuals to make faster, more cost effective behavioral change. Oh, I was just about to force you and just take the heat a bit up to say, can you just on your feet define then what digital coaching is? Do you mind to just probably in a one liner give us uh, Jonathan Passmore's definition of digital coaching is? It's synchronous coaching conversations that happen through technological digital means. That is going to the records. That is going to the records. Thank you so much uh, for that um, definition. Let's probably move a bit further. I mean, we are talking to organizations here. We're talking to HR leaders. And one of their biggest questions over and over again, how does coaching support behavior change? How would you respond to that question? So it's a great personalized approach that does enable individuals to think about what change they want to make think about their personality, their attributes, their strengths, and then to leverage those aspects of who they are to put in place a plan that moves them closer to that goal that they have set. And unlike many other aspects of goal setting, the repetitive nature of a coaching conversation, it's just not a one-off, it's a series of episodes and thus, that coach is able to come back, hold them to account, support and encourage them. Because all the research around behavioural change tells us that it's pretty hard. We believe that we can make a change. But if we just take the example uh, of gym membership. Now, private gyms make a business out of the fact that in the autumn period, November, December, they sell gym membership. And many of us think, oh, fantastic. I'm going to next year get fit. I'm going to sign up and I'm going to go there three times a week. I'm going to be on that running machine. By Christmas of next year, I will be a new person. It's going to be amazing. And of course, we sign up for 12 months of membership. We pay that fee, commit for uh, that, that those series of payments. And then in the first week, we are there working off our Christmas dinners and we're on the running machine doing our fabulous stuff. By the end of the month, of course, there's a new episode uh, of The Crown or you're watching the Squid Games or whatever it might be on the BBC or on Netflix. Uh, and people slip from going three times a week to going once a week. By the time they get to mid-February, they've stopped going. And what we need is not just a goal to help us to do this, because we know we make slips. We have relapses. Any commitment that you've probably made, any of the listeners have made, we don't see it through instantly. We need support. We need encouragement alongside that goal. And when those elements are in place, which is what coaching offers, the individuals are more likely to make a change. So the research evidence says it helps in goal setting. Well, that's in a way the easy part, but it also helps in goal attainment. And that comes through repetitive engagement. Coaching doesn't let people give up. It supports, it encourages, it holds their feet over the fire to encourage them to, OK, you had a slip last week. You didn't manage to go on the three occasions that you said you were going to. 
Okay, let's just start. Line in the sand, let's start now. Tuesday, you go. Thursday, you go. Saturday, you go. So in that sense, behavioural change, while it's hard, coaching is highly effective at helping individuals to move forward. And the other area where I would say that it's very useful is just having a sounding board to talk issues through. And and many of us do that through our friends and our partners. And sometimes the nature of the issues at work or just the frequency of those issues at work means that either our partner doesn't want to hear night after night the same stories about Jack or Jane in the finance department and how they're annoying us or how difficult our job is. Oh, you know, all of the stuff. They might be sympathetic to us. They might be empathetic and listen and uh, try and help us. But we also need to have spaces where we can take it outside of those friendships, of those personal relationships, and to think it through more independently. And the coach brings that independence into the conversation, helping us to come to uh, a new insight of what we're going to do about it. I love what Jonathan Pasmo said there, that coaching doesn't let people give up. Because it's not just about setting your goals, but also about goal attainment. The role of a coach is to support and encourage you so that you come up with those repetitive behaviors that enable you to achieve that goal. Thanks for sticking around with us so far. We're almost at the end of the show. And before we wrap up with our last two questions, we all know how challenging last year has been for many of us. I asked Jonathan Pasmo to share some of his advice with our podcast listeners for this year. There is much discussion about hybrid and remote working and a lot of conversations about an expectation that employees will have to work from home or they will have to come into the workplace. And I think my thoughts around this is that hybrid working for many can be very convenient But for HR and for the rest of us as leaders and managers in the organisations, we need new systems and processes to support those colleagues who are working at home. And on the other side, for those colleagues who want to come into the office, we need to ensure that we've got processes and systems around health and safety, but also uh, around the flexibility that we might have responding to the individual's needs rather than having blanket policies to say everybody must do this. That there are benefits clearly in working in the office, but there are also benefits in terms of productivity of working at home. We just need to find the right ways for each individual that optimises their performance. And secondly, put in place the systems and processes that facilitate hybrid and remote working while supporting appropriately those colleagues who wish to come back to the workspace because they don't have the space at home. Maybe they're working uh, in their bedroom, they're working in a, in a bedsit, they're working in a shared house. Uh, and so how do we do that in a way that provides that choice and flexibility? And that means creating new ways of working that enable people to succeed and thus enabling organisations to succeed. 
coming up with new ways of working that responding to individuals' needs. I think that's so profound, right? How do we support HR um, professionals in that space? So as we wrap up our conversation, it's been amazing to um, have this time with you. As I said, when we started the show that you're going to wrap up with your predictions for the future. If you were a futurist, uh, what would be your predictions about the future of coaching? 10 years from now, 20 years from now, what would you predict the future of coaching? How would it look like for you? We are currently at a pivot point. And coaching is moving from being a cottage industry to being a professionalized industry. So we're seeing a movement away in coaching, as we have seen in many other industries, clothing, manufacturer, agricultural over the last 500 years. We are moving from a point where traditionally it's been uh, either relatively small organizations doing that alongside many other consulting uh, offers with small teams, one or two people or 20 or 30 people or sole practitioners who are providing coaching. And I'm, I would predict over the next five years, we'll see that shift taking place to the combination of science and technology coming together with large scale providers. The, the second change uh, that we'll see is that technology will amplify and speed up this change. And that means that uh, we will be seeing uh, through the use of quantum computing and its impact on AI and its impact also on VR. And we're seeing AI and VR technologies being developed in other fields. That means that we'll be complementing the one-to-one human-human conversation with a greater use of technology. Now that could lead us in, and it's always impossible to predict. So the one thing that you can say about predictions about the future is they're always wrong. Uh, But as a general trend, a greater use of AI that can see maybe some aspects for uh, a computer-generated series of questions. And we're seeing that a very low-level, basic uh, uh, computer programs beginning to do this, but a more sophisticated levelling is certainly not present. So by 2030 or 2035, we can see the emergence uh, of those sorts of tools and the ability for the coach to be able to to use that. And secondly, the opportunities for us to use virtual reality, VR spaces. So many of the tech companies are developing uh, VR offers. So let's see whether Google's uh, offer or Apple's offer has the same traction that the iWatch or the iPhone has as redefining the industry connected to VR. And my suspicion is that it probably will. And alongside this, just as an example for people who are listening and thinking about, well, can we ever do that digitally? Um, If listeners just Google, uh, this person does not exist. And it's a website that from a single pixel creates a face. The face of the person that it creates does not exist. It has created it by having looked at thousands and thousands of facial images of what a human face looks like, and it creates that face. So if we can create digitally humans to that level of quality that don't exist, we can do that in virtual reality. And it may not be me sitting in that virtual reality space, but by bringing together AI and VR uh, and the knowledge that coaches have, 
we can augment the coaching session through these technological interventions. So maybe by 2035, the coach who we meet is supplemented by all of this technology even further. Wow. Interesting predictions from Jonathan Passmore. We look forward to these predictions. So thank you so much for your time. It has been an honor and a privilege to spend this time with you. Thank you, Wendy. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Spark Leadership and I am Wendy Tsepiso Maledu. I hope you found this discussion insightful and valuable. If you'd like what you've heard and want to explore more, head on over to coachhub.com to learn how we democratize coaching across all career levels. Thanks for listening and I hope you will tune in next time for my conversation with leadership expert Terence Taylor who spoke with me about how African leadership styles can help organizations establish healthier, more democratic leadership structures and embrace user-centered leadership. Lots of amazing insights and wisdom from Terence Taylor. From everyone here at Coach Hub Studios, have a wonderful day. Happiness.